Well, we've been going through the gospel according to Mark. We've been preaching right through that book, and so we are up to Mark chapter 10. We're just about two-thirds of the way through the, the gospel of Mark already. Our sermon text is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask just stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word, Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark writes, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, some of you weren't here last, uh, last Lord's Day, but uh, we, we, as I said, we go through right through books here. We don't jump around and pick, pick and choose the easy passages and, the, and the, leave the hard ones un, un, uh, untouched. Uh, last week, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50, we looked at another difficult passage, one that's really more difficult than this one, but maybe doesn't often feel that way. And we talked about what Jesus talked about there, which was the subject of hell. In fact, Jesus, sometimes people say Jesus never taught about hell. Well, Jesus t- teaches about it more than anyone else, as we saw in Scripture. Last week we looked at that. We looked at the dangers of sin, the radical need for repentance, where Jesus said, if, you're, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, what did he say to do? Cut it off. It sounds very drastic, very, uh, very much uh, gets our attention when you read that kind of, of, of language. And, of course, he talked about a lot about hell there. The very fact that Jesus himself preached about hell and did so so bluntly should make us kind of sit up and pay attention. Well, as uh, the Lord would have it, uh, in his word, we come here in the very next passage to another difficult text, another difficult, in some sense, topic, and that is uh, the, the topic of, the, of what the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce. You know, if you were to take your Bible and, and, and kind of page through it and find the things that, that make you uncomfortable and take a pair of scissors, now I'm not saying you should do this, take a pair of scissors and kind of snip out the parts that you don't like, or snip out the parts that make you a little uneasy or a little uncomfortable, or snip out the parts that you read and you scratch your head and you say, well, what? I'm not really sure what that even means. My hunch is we'd have very short Bibles. We'd have uh, a Reader's Digest version of, of the Scriptures. Now, we certainly shouldn't do that. Um, but this is one of those passages. This is one of those topics that uh, can make us a bit a bit uncomfortable and, and how many in our land even in, our, in this room how many of us can say that our families in no way either directly or otherwise have, have not been touched by, by divorce I couldn't put my hand up in that regard I, I couldn't say my, my entire family has not had that, 
be be a, an issue. Uh, it's commonly stated that uh, the divorce rate in the United States is between 40 and 50 percent. Now, I think that stat is a little bit uh, a little bit uh, dishonest or, or maybe not quite accurate. Uh, those numbers might be a little bit inflated, but that's the number you hear over and over and over again. Uh, 40 to 50, 50 percent of marriages uh, end in in divorce. Now, there are different ways to to, to make statistics say what you want. And so we have to be careful with that. But either way, you, you make those numbers shift. Uh, either way, the number is quite high. And so in our day, uh, divorce is not rare, to say the least. Years ago, that might not have been the case. But in our day, they, it is quite common. Uh, more than that, there are studies, many studies, that suggest that the divorce rate among Christians is not much different than that. I'm, I'm not sure that that is quite correct either. Uh, but the very fact that that statistics seem so plausible to us and I think we wouldn't have a very hard time believing that in some ways uh, that's, that's certainly an indication that the divorce rate among believers in Christ is far too common it's far too high in our day and we know that should not be be so well we're going to see a few things from our text this morning and the first thing that we see here in our passage is the Pharisees testing the Lord the Pharisees testing the Lord. Now, who are the Pharisees? Everybody doesn't know who they are. They, you know, if you're, if you're raised, you know, knowing your Bible, and I say the word Pharisee, my guess is, you're, if we were going to do a word association game, if I were to say, um, you know, good, you'd say bad. If I say dark, you'd say light. You know, uh, pizza, you'd say don't put pineapple on it, or something like that. You know, if I were to say Pharisee, you think bad guy, right? And you wouldn't be wrong. But if you were there in the first century in, in, in Judea, if you were in that crowd that Jesus was, was preaching to and teaching, and, and somebody said, oh, look, here comes the Pharisees, what would you have thought? Now, you might have thought something along the lines of, you know, a very strict, hypocritical person, but you, you would have thought, oh, there's the pastor. Kind of. Now, you might not like pastors, but you, you, you would probably say, oh, there's the religious professionals. They're the ones that really, they're, they're close to God. They're the ones that know the, the scriptures and all that. Um, but when you read them in, in Mark's gospel, when, when Mark says, here come the Pharisees, you know from previous experience in Mark's gospel that they are in very many ways opponents of Christ. They, they don't show up and, and assist him. They don't show up and praise him. They show up to, to oppose him. Now, in this part of Mark's gospel, starting at the end of chapter 8, all the way through the end of the gospel, what you find is Jesus is making a beeline for Jerusalem. He, used, he was doing his itinerant ministry and traveling you know, all over the place through Galilee and other places. Well, now, now it's, it's, he's got his compass pointed in one direction. He's going to Jerusalem. And the reason he's going to Jerusalem is he's going to the cross. He knows where he's going. Jesus is not... Uh, in any kind of uh, doubt as to what awaits him when he gets to, to Jerusalem. He knows the cross for our salvation is in his, in his future. And Mark points that out kind of subtly in verse 1. Was, what does he say? That Jesus has come to what? The region of Judea. Judea is, is the region where Jerusalem was. He's getting towards closer and closer to uh, Judea. Now think about this. Jesus is making a beeline to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there, the cross. And yet, what does he stop and do? He still takes the time to teach the crowds when they gather to him. I think that should be 
significant to us. In fact, Mark says that was, quote, in verse 1, it's his custom, as was his custom. Whenever someone gathered to him, he would teach them God's, God's word. Now, the Pharisees also had a custom, didn't they? And their custom was whenever they came across Jesus, they, they showed up and, and opposed him. And here, what do they do? They ask him a seemingly innocent question, right? They ask him a question about, about the legality, the, the propriety of, of divorce. In verse 2, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, what, is, what, is Mark, what does Mark tell us the reason was they were asking the question? In order to test him. You know, we, we sometimes play the game in church. Uh, we don't officially call it that. Uh, but we call it, we play stump the chump or stump the pastor. You know, you, you ask the pastor a question. You know, if what's the old standard? You know, if God is all powerful, can He make a rock so big that He that He can't lift it? That kind of a thing. Well, that's not going to get a pastor in trouble, even though it might uh, cause him a, a little bit of a, of a headache. But they were they were asking a question to test Jesus. They meant him harm by this by this question. Now. You and I, I think it's easy for us to overstate the differences between ourselves and the people that, that Jesus was dealing with in, back in the first century. You know, we might say to ourselves, you know, we, we use a phrase like this. You ever say, in Bible times, you know, back in Bible times, as if our times are so different. You know, in Bible times, uh, this wouldn't have been a, a problem. You know, this would have been a, an easy question for, for Jesus or anybody else's apostles to to answer, we kind of we kind of assume, I think, wrongly that the subject of divorce would have been not that uncomfortable for them. That maybe it wasn't an issue for them. We act we act as if everything was invented, you know, in our day, in our generation. That divorce didn't even exist until that's not true. Divorce was, in many ways, in many parts of the world back even then, it was rampant, and it wasn't uncommon even among the people of of Israel. So it was a, this was an awkward, awkward and difficult question for them to ask Christ even back, back then. And it's certainly, not, uh, it's, it's certainly a part of the reason they asked it in the first place. They didn't ask him an easy question. They didn't ask him something they knew what the answer was. And they knew that the, they didn't ask him something that they thought would result in applause from the crowd. They asked him something they thought would cause him trouble. You might remember, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, that this is not the first time in the Gospel of Mark where this subject has come up. Jesus wasn't the one doing the teaching about it, but earlier in the book, in chapter 6, you find the account of the death, the murder of John the Baptist. What was the reason that John the Baptist was in jail to begin with, under Herod? Yeah, he, what, what, what he had done was he, this weird-looking man in a camel's hair coat and leather belt that was eating locusts and honey, went to King Herod who wasn't wearing a leather, a leather belt and, and uh, camel's hair coat, and was eating things that were much better than honey and, and bugs, uh, he went to, to Herod and he said, uh, Mark says, that John had been saying to Herod, Mark 6.18, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Imagine, imagine the, the, the backbone it would take for the prophet of God to go to this king who, in an earthly sense, had the power of life and death over him, and we, as we saw, ended up having him killed. And when it says, had been saying, the tense there indicates that it wasn't a one-time thing. You know, we, might, we might gather up the, the, the gumption to go to somebody and blurt something out once and then duck away and hope, hope you don't run into them again. 
John apparently, this was his message to Herod over and over and over again. When he saw Herod, whenever he had the chance, he told him, what you're doing is wrong. That wife of yours is not that wife of yours. That's your brother's wife. In other words, he's saying, she's still his wife. Your piece of paper isn't worth the paper it's printed on, even though you're the king, even though you're the one in charge. Now, if you think about the fact that John was beheaded as a result of that bold testimony, maybe it's no wonder that some of us pastors are at times a little fearful about preaching on, on the subject. You know, of course, we're not worried about losing our heads literally. But um, Now, many commentators believe that part of the motivation for this question, this test that, they, that the Pharisees gave to Jesus, uh, was actually connected to Herod. That it wasn't an accident that they were in the territory of Herod at this time, and they brought up this particular subject. Now, they didn't say, is Herod's divorce okay? But they were in his territory, and it's not too much to think that they might have hoped to cause trouble for Christ with Herod, and that Herod might, if he heard about what was said, might do similarly with Jesus, what he did with John, that is, imprison him and execute him for his testimony. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Mark tells us the Pharisees and the Herodians, the followers of Herod, held counsel together with each other against Christ. And what was their goal, it says in Mark 3, 6? How to destroy him. They, they wanted him dead. They weren't just trying to discredit him a little bit or cause him a little bit of trouble. They wanted Jesus gone from the scene. They, we shouldn't underestimate their hatred for Christ and what they wanted to have happened to him. They weren't just trying to make him look bad. They were, fit. they were trying to do him real harm. Now, we should also take note one other thing. Now, you notice that Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching the crowds. Mark usually doesn't. Mark usually just says Jesus was teaching and then he did this and this and this and something happened. He doesn't give us the content. So it's kind of strange and ironic, but it's fitting that Mark does give us the content of what Jesus said in reply to this test this testing, this question from, from the Pharisees. You notice that Jesus doesn't duck the question. He doesn't duck the hard question at all. In fact, he answers it pretty boldly. And he answers it with an, with an answer that would not have kept him from trouble from Herod. The answer he gave, if word got back to Herod, bad things would happen. This wasn't a safe, a safe answer. You can be sure that his words about divorce, about, even about Herod's divorce, would have been no less displeasing to him than John's words were. So Jesus did not play it safe at all here. One commentator says that Jesus' pronouncement confirms the bold testimony of John and condemns equally Herod, Antipas, that, that was his name, and Herodias, the same people that John the Baptist dealt with. Well, the second thing we want to look at is not just the test, but the question itself, the question of divorce itself. Now, I have to make a kind of a caveat here, uh, sort of an apology in advance. I can't, for the sake of time, deal with every possible question and nuance of the subjects of marriage and divorce. And I'll say this, the text doesn't do that either. Jesus doesn't do that in this text. And so there may be some questions. This may be a can of worms that I, that I open up in the text, and it might not put all the worms back in the can. So I'll leave that uh, out there, but we'll do the best we can. What we're going to do here this morning is deal with our text primarily. We won't disregard other texts, but we're going to deal with the passage in front of us first and, and foremost and what Jesus talks about on this subject. Now, the Pharisees were testing the Lord. Now, that's a bad idea, isn't it? 
fact, Jesus said the same thing to Satan in, in the wilderness in his temptation. Shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, here they are. They're testing the Lord their God. Now, what they thought Jesus was going to say in response, we don't really know. Although the, our hunch is, if you think about it, they probably expected him to say something like what he said. That's what they were kind of hoping that he would say to get himself in trouble, maybe with Herod or other people. Um, but his answer, I think, in, in, in another way, might not have been what they expected. What does Jesus often do when someone asks him a question? Asks him one right back. In some ways, that's the best way to answer a difficult question. And what does he say there? Verse 3, what did Moses command you? Notice he doesn't say, what did Moses, Moses command? He actually says, what did Moses command you? What Moses said applies to them and it applies to us. Now, that question, in some sense, that's how you and I should seek to answer every question that we have regarding what we are to believe and what we are to do, the, what we're, the doctrine and our, in our practice. You know, we are to see to it that the word of God is our only rule for faith and practice. If you want to know what to believe, it should be what the scripture says. If you want to know how we are to live, we should look and see what the word of God says. Our, our approach, your approach in mind to any question like this should be, what do the scriptures teach? Even if it teaches something we don't like or don't naturally think. It's the old saying, don't believe everything you think. You know, think about what does the Bible say about it? And if my thinking is out of line with the scripture, it's not the Bible we should change. It's probably our, our thinking. Our minds need to be renewed. Well, how did the Pharisees answer Jesus' question right back to them? They said this in verse 4. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's a pretty vague, broad, all-encompassing way, way to put it. Now, they're probably referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. There, this is what Moses wrote. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Moses said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she depart, departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband, the first husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance now that may sound like a very convoluted uh, situation you know elsewhere they, they asked Jesus about the resurrection because they didn't believe it and they said hey you know let's say a man dies and, has no, and the wife has no children and she marries his brother and they have no children and he dies and so on and so on Whose wife is she in the resurrection? And they said that not because they really thought of somebody who had that happen, but they were trying to trap Jesus and kind of give him one of those difficult trap questions, right? They were trying to say the resurrection was false because of that situation. Now, Jesus disproved that. Um, but what, what we find here is the Pharisees, what had they done to what Moses had wrote? They, they really had flipped it on its head. They had taken these words from Deuteronomy 24 and taken them in a way that they were never intended to be used for in the first place. They, they took Moses' writings there, his, his words there, as kind of a, a blank check, kind of as a carte blanche permission to divorce at will. 
if you can imagine, we have that in our day. We have no-fault divorce. We have all kinds of things. Well, this, this was kind of that, that a man could just be, according to some of them, a man could just say, well, you know, I'm not happy with how things are going. Here's your, here's your paper, and send her on her way. Well, Jesus, is going to, as we're going to see, tells them it's not really what it was intended to be. Moses there in Deuteronomy 24 was, was not trying to give everybody a blank check. He was trying to curb and limit the practice of divorce. He was trying to make it more difficult to obtain, not easier. The Pharisees, what do they commonly do? They looked for loopholes. We, on our worst days, we do the same thing. We say, when we're not thinking very biblically, we think, well, what can I get away with? What's the bare minimum I have, have to do, or what, how far can I, can I go? Well, that's what they were doing. They weren't saying to themselves, what's God's will in this situation? What would God have me do? They were saying, what can I get away with? What, what can I justify in my actions before God? And Jesus points that out, doesn't he? In verse 5, what does he say? He says it was, quote, because of your, not their, your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus acknowledges that Moses wrote what he wrote. He doesn't say, oh, Moses was wrong. He says the only reason that Moses even had to say that was because of your hardness of heart. One writer says this, Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. His opponents, the Pharisees, his opponents ask what is permissible he, Jesus, points to what is commanded. Now you notice that in that passage in Deuteronomy that I read from Deuteronomy 24, Moses in that passage is not, not, not establishing the practice of divorce. It is not what he's doing there. He's not saying thou shalt do X, Y, and Z. He's dealing with the things as they were in his day. He's dealing with what the people were already doing because of the hardness of their hearts and seeking to limit the damage that they were doing. That's the intent of Deuteronomy chapter 24. You might be surprised to know that our confession of faith, our, our doctrinal standards are called the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter and larger catechisms. Well, the confession of faith, you might be surprised to know, has an entire chapter on marriage and divorce. It's chapter 24. Well, part of that chapter says this talking about the exceptions to the rule. It says, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study or to, to look for arguments to put asunder, to put away those whom God has joined together in marriage. In other words, our sinful natures, that's what we tend to do. We tend to look for ways out, right? That's what, that's what it's saying. And we study very hard to find those ways out, those loopholes. It says, yet... Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or the government is cause sufficient to dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the person's concern in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So there's two things the Bible recognizes as what we call grounds, and those are adultery and willful desertion. Now, they're grounds. They're not commands there's a difference they aren't it doesn't mean that this happens therefore do everything you can to get out it's not what it what it says now based on this is based on a couple at least a couple passages Matthew 5 verses 31 to 32 it's from the Sermon on the Mount Jesus taught about marriage and divorce even in the Sermon on the Mount people are always saying they're trying to live by the Sermon on the Mount well they should think about this too it says it was also said Jesus says 
Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24 again. And then he says something a prophet would never have said. But I say to you, he's not contradicting. He's saying, I'm, I'm actually the lawgiver here. I'm not just a prophet. I'm above the prophets. I'm the one whose law it was in the first place. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and here it is, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think he's saying much the same thing in our text here as well. The ground of sexual immorality is the only ground he recognizes in that passage. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul writes this, verses 12 to 16, he says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, Paul says, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and consents to live with him, to stay with him, he should not divorce her. You can imagine, imagine Paul's situation. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to pagan lands that didn't know the, the Old Testament, didn't know the Lord, the, the one true and living God. He's going there preaching the gospel and people are coming to faith in Christ out of pagan idolatry. Uh, they, they, they've lived in all kinds. Who knows what kind of immorality and things they had practiced and engaged in. Uh, who knows how many, what their marriages were like. Well, let's say you're, you're this hypothetical situation, which wasn't that hypothetical in his day. Let's say that you're, you're a man, you're married to a woman, and, and you're both you know, down and out pagans, and, and one of you gets saved. One of you comes to know the Lord by faith in Christ. You could, you could imagine that somebody could say, this would be wrong. They could say, you know, the Bible says in the Old Testament and elsewhere, it says, it says in the Bible that you shouldn't be unequally yoked. In other words, you're not to marry in the New Testament. You're not to marry an unbeliever, Right? You can, you can see this person in the wheels turning and saying, well, I'm a Christian now. Now I'm married to an unbeliever, so I should. You know, it sounds logical, but Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's supposed to work at all. Don't, don't do that. And this is what he says. Uh, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, it goes both ways. And he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. Why? For the unbelieving husband is made holy, not saved, but made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Your children are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, the NIV says, or is not bound God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he, Paul, Paul speaks of abandonment. The kind of abandonment where there's no fixing it. That kind of a thing. In that case, it's not, it's not on you. But you aren't to be the one doing the abandoning. So those, those are the, the, quote, exceptions to the rule, so to speak. Uh, but we should focus more on the rule than the exceptions. We spend all of our time thinking about the exceptions. I think that, that shows a possible hardness of our hearts as well. So let's look at the last thing, maybe the most important thing, and that's God's will, his actual will for, for marriage. Now Jesus, what does Jesus do in answering this question? He points back to Genesis, back to the will of God as it was originally for marriage. God's design for the institution of marriage as he ordained it. Notice, again, he points back to the early chapters of Genesis. And so... That's where God instituted and ordained marriage. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, way, way back when, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two 
shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Those are some words you probably hear at every other wedding you've ever been to. Maybe your own wedding, you had that phrase somewhere at the end from, from the pastor. Now, I want to give us a, a handful of, of uh, points from this text that Jesus points us to. And the first thing he notices, he says, from the beginning of creation, in verse 6, from the very beginning of creation, God himself instituted marriage. Now, that sounds like an easy point. That sounds like a, a no-brainer point. You're probably sitting there thinking, well, no, duh, pastor. Yeah, we all, we all know that. Um, but think about this. In our day, do people think that? Do your neighbors, your unbelieving loved ones and friends, do they think of marriage first and foremost as a God-ordained institution? No, they, they probably think of it as some kind of a social convention that people made up on their own. That's how we explain everything these days. God didn't do anything. People came up with everything. Marriage is not just some social construct that people invented on their own. If it were a mere social convention or construct, you and I might be free to do with whatever we want to it. But it's not the case. God instituted it, marriage that is, at the very beginning, Jesus says. And if God is the one that instituted it, we aren't free to do with it whatever we want. That's just the way that it is. Second thing, God himself ordained marriage as, between, as being what? Between man and a woman. He says they're male and female, verse 6. Now, 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been a very controversial thing to bring up. But in our day, that very idea has come under fire. Jesus tells us there, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, verse 9, in our day, kind of the, the, the opposite it almost needs to be said. What God has separated, let no man join together. That's, you know, I, I have read, and this, it sounds like it's a joke from the onion or something. I've read things in the last month online that talk about a woman marrying herself and, and it being allowed, someone marrying a tree, an inanimate object. This is far beyond gay marriage. This, people are, t are taking marriage and just twisting it beyond all recognition. The third thing, God himself designed and instituted marriage of husband and wife as taking precedence even over one's father and mother. That's a whopper. That's one that we should really take some time to think about. He says, there, what does he say? Therefore, verse 7, therefore a man, this is from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. If you have the old King James, it says cleave, cleave to your wife or cleave to his Wife. Now that word, that, that phrase comes from a word that has the idea of being glued to something. He's saying, if I can paraphrase, leave your father and mother and stick to your wife like glue. Like, don't annoy your wife by sticking too close to her as glue, but, but stick to your wife like glue. Maybe in our day that means crazy glue, something that really won't... You know, God doesn't say stick to your wife like Velcro. <laughs> you know, Velcro, you can... It, it, easy come, easy go. It's glue. Difficult to separate. It should be very difficult to separate. He says this bond to unite husband and wife is so inseparable that they become one flesh. One flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Now think about this. Some of us have had difficult family situations, and I don't want to fail to acknowledge that. Not everybody has the the leave it to beaver family situation at home, the perfect nuclear family and things, but leaving your father and mother, 
It doesn't mean dishonoring them. The, one of the, the fifth commandment is what? Honor your father and mother. Marriage doesn't undo that. When you get married, you don't, you don't get to say, hey, now I don't have to honor my father or mother. Thanks, God. It's one less thing. No. It, what, it, what it means is, who takes precedence? If you're a man, who's, who takes precedence now for you? Is it your mother and father or is it your wife? That should be an easy one. It's your wife. If, you're, if your father and mother attempt in some way to come between you and your wife, guess who's supposed to lose? They are. Now, hopefully that should never be the case. But what would it take for you to forsake, to never see again your father and mother if they're still with us? What would it take for you to do that? To say, I'm done with them, they're dead to me when they're not actually dead. It should be easier to do that than to leave your wife. That's what the scripture says. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, it should be easier to separate conjoined twins or split a person in half than leave your wife or husband. That's, that's what this says. That they shall become one flesh, they're no longer two but one. Our lives in, in marriage get so wound together, so glued together, that it, it's an act of violence to, to, to do them to take them apart. Now the last point, and there could be more that we could say, the Lord sums it up there at the end in verse 8 and 9. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So marriage is the joining together of a husband and wife, not just by a judge, humanly speaking, that's, that's the case, or even by an ordained pastor, right? Who, who is the one that joins husband and wife together ultimately, according to Jesus Christ himself? God, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There, that should be the ultimate barrier, the ultimate stopping point. If, if it's just a man that joins us together, well, it's just a man. But if it's God that joins us together, that should make us pause and hold up and wait and rethink what we are, we are doing. And so the state does not have final say or authority on this matter. Just because the state, the government, declares something legal does not make it lawful. Just because the government says something is okay does not mean it's acceptable in God's sight. And if it's not acceptable in God's sight, it's not safe for anyone to go against what he says. That can be said about a lot of things in our day. Too many of us, I think, fall for that notion of, well, the government says it's fine, it's legal, therefore it must be okay. Not everything that's legal is acceptable. And then Jesus, what does he do? He teaches his disciples when they're alone away from the crowds in the house in verses 10 through 12 he says Mark says in, in the house the disciples asked him again for about this matter so it's possible to ask this question without being a trap they heard the question they heard the answer and they still weren't sure what to think so if you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself this sounds very complicated I'm not sure I get it you're in good company the disciples themselves when, when they were alone maybe they didn't want to be embarrassed by raising their hands in front of the crowd they said Jesus I what does this mean? What, is this, what does this mean? It says, He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, it's a two-way street, and marries another, she commits adultery. I think he's, he's assuming the same situation as that one we read back in Matthew 5. He's assuming an improper, an unlawful divorce. So those who divorce unlawfully actually cause adultery. Think about that. If it's, if it's a divorce that God is not recognizing and they go and get with someone else, what, what are they actually doing? They think they're doing something fine and God, according to Christ, says they're committing adultery. Now that was the case with Herod, wasn't it? 
I mean, John the Baptist didn't say, hey, you know, whatever, it, it's okay now. What's done is done, Herod. It's all, it's all good. He says, no, that's not your wife. That's your brother's wife. So Jesus is upholding that very thing. Some, some remarriages, not all, some are nothing but a pretext for sin. You know, there, there are some who don't imagine themselves to be adulterers, but their marriages are nothing but a serial adultery with the sanction of, of the state. It's a very tangled web that we sometimes weave. Now, what a mess we've made in our day by thinking ourselves to be much wiser than God. That's never a good idea. Not a good idea to test God. Not a good idea to think that we, are, we know better than God. How badly has, have we distorted, twisted, and abused God, good, God's good gift of, of marriage? How commonly do marriages end in divorce in our day? How much heartbreak and damage is done to families and communities and our society as a whole? Now, this has been a heavy topic to discover, to think about, to discuss. Now, I must say there is an ocean of grace, mercy, and forgiveness to be found in Christ, even for these kinds of sins. This is not the scarlet letter we're talking about. This is not the unforgivable sin. Uh, Jesus does not say this is the unforgivable sin, and that once you cross this bridge, there's no, no going back. You can have forgiveness if you just repent and seek forgiveness from Christ, divorce is not unforgivable. The improper, uh, improper divorce, such as we've been talking about here. We should pray that God might grant repentance to us, to our land, to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, as Malachi and Luke both, both say. Maybe, may God be pleased to heal and strengthen marriages and families in our town. You know, as, as a church, as small as we are, churches much bigger than us, we should be spending time looking at how we can strengthen our marriages, the marriages of our people. Don't, we shouldn't wait till it gets so far gone uh, that, that there's nothing left to do but, but divorce and, and all these things. We should be trying to strengthen marriages in our church, in our community, pray for those to be strengthened. May the Lord renew our minds according to his word on this very topic, as we're even doing this morning, that our own lives and marriages might be transformed, to use the words of Romans 12, 1 and 2, to the glory of God, may God's grace and the work of his spirit, uh, may he work within his people, that we as a church and our marriages and families would be a, a shining city on a hill, to use other language from, from scripture. May, may our neighbors see your marriages and mine not as perfect. That would be fiction. If we're hoping our neighbors see the perfect marriage in us, you should just stop now. Um, and I, I, that goes for me as a pastor. I don't walk around town thinking, oh, my marriage is perfect and my kids are perfect. No, that, that's how hypocrisy happens. That's nothing but fiction. But your neighbors should see, and our neighbors should see, your marriage and your family as imperfect as they are. And they are imperfect. They should see them as faithful representations and pictures of what marriage is meant to be. And what is the marriage meant to be? Why, why does God hate divorce? You ever ask yourself that? Why is it such a big deal? God hates lots of things. But why does God hate divorce? It's because marriage between a husband and a wife is a picture of Christ and the church. It's a picture of Christ and his bride, which is the church. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 31 to 33, he says, Therefore, this might sound familiar, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Everybody's quoting Genesis 2 apparently here. And the two shall become one flesh. And then what does Paul say? Paul interprets it. He says, there, the mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Why, why does marriage matter so much to God? He, he ordained it. He ordained it for our benefit. We, we sometimes treat it the way we treat the Lord's Day. Oh, it's a burden. Oh, it's this thing I have to lug around. No, it's God. God knows you need it. And so he gave it to most of us. Some of it, not everybody has to get married, but God, for, in general, it's meant to be a blessing. All kinds of things, all kinds of blessings come, come through it. But the main reason is it's a picture of the gospel. As, as strange as it may sound, Paul himself says, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That's Christ and you. The, the, the picture of the relationship you have between you, between you and the Lord, your marriage is in some sense, regardless of how good or bad it is, it's a, it's a small picture of it. It's a small picture of the gospel. So let us think about these things. Let us renew our minds by the scripture. May God be pleased to work in us uh, what is pleasing in his sight in our marriages and our homes. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you that you... Even in the beginning said it was not good that man should be alone and you took it upon yourself by your kindness and mercy to make a helper suitable for him and one that became his bone of his own bone and flesh of his own flesh. And we thank you that you blessed marriage. We thank you for the blessings you give us, that you give us uh, each other a helpmeet suitable for each other, that you give us uh, children that are a blessing from you, a heritage from the Lord and a reward of uh, a godly reward from you. We thank you for children and grandchildren. Thank you for families that you don't leave us alone. We thank you even for the families you give us in our church, that, that you give fathers to the fatherless, you give children to the childless, you give help and strength and family to the widow and the orphan even. We thank you for the family of God that you give us in your church. And we ask that you would uh, help each one of us in this room and those who are away at the moment. You would give us grace to be uh, repentant, that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would strengthen our marriages, our families, help us as husbands to love our wives sacrificially, help our wives to be uh, in submission in a godly way, the way that you say. We pray that you would help us to raise up our children in the, in the fear and admonition of you, that uh, you might make them a blessing, that make them uh, go on and be stronger than we were, to be better than we were. Bless our children, make them useful in your sight. And we do pray that you would have mercy upon our land, that you would uh, have mercy and grant repentance and faith, that you would heal marriages, heal families, undo the damage that we often do by our sin. And may our marriages be pleasing again in your sight and glorifying to the name of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.